0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas, coming to you from our Melbourne studio. This week we'll be looking at Kevin Rudd's essay, The Complacent Country, have another look at the Hayne Royal Commission and its continuing reverberations, and also mass resignations at Melbourne University Publishing, what does this mean? I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Chris Berg of RMIT University, who is also a fellow of the IPA. Thanks, Scott. Today, we're joined by special guest panelists. First of all, the man who needs no introduction, John Roskam, and also... <laughs> and we'll receive none. <laughs> and we'll receive none. Uh, and also John Pesuto, another John John Pesuto, lawyer, wit, and widely respected member of the Victorian Parliament until a series of unfortunate events last <laughs> November. The title of my next book. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, I hope it, this is not really confusing for you, Scott
1: and Chris, talking to a couple of Johns. When I was in grade three at Orana Park Primary School in Dandenong North, there were seven Johns in the
0: class. <laughs> <laughs> so now so, any Johns under two? So when the t- <laughs> t- Everyone's old. a Jack now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right, with various spellings, of course. Um, and don't forget in our final segment, uh, we'll be asking each of these uh, wonderful panelists what they've been reading. Watching and listening to. So, do hang around for that. If you're listening on iTunes or any other great podcast platform, don't forget to subscribe for future episodes of Looking Forward. But first, as mentioned, we're going to look at Kevin Rudd's 20,000 word essay, The Complacent Country. This was my suggestion, and I saw the reference to,
1: as you said, Scott, um, Kevin Rudd's 20,000 words. Uh, on his website kevinrudd.com and he talked about him writing these reflections over the uh, uh, American um, winter and our our summer. Um, I also discovered on his website that you could listen to Kevin Rudd reading 20,000 words out on SoundCloud. It's about two hours long. I've listened to about half of it, so listeners and you don't need to listen to it. Um, And I don't know whether I was depressed or excited that only as of a few moments ago, about 250 people had actually downloaded it. But um, I thought it was interesting in as much as it's a reflection of what Kevin Rudd thinks he he did right, which is he thinks a lot of things, what he did wrong, uh, he thinks he did nothing wrong, but more importantly where the left is at at the moment in the world and, and in Australia. And Kevin Rudd uh, starts uh, – the essay by talking about what he regards as the failure of conservatism and he uses lots of pejorative and almost swear words to describe Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott uh, and what he thinks they've done for the country which is nothing. He then goes on what can only be described as a tirade slash jihad against the Murdoch press and it's really interesting to listen and read Kevin Rudd talking about Murdoch because it informs of course uh, what he tried to do with the Finkelstein Inquiry. And he talks basically about Murdoch press and a free press to some extent being the enemy of, of progressive politics. Then he gives us his solutions, which of course involve um, climate change. They involve um, uh, a larger Australian and, and population growth. But fundamentally, uh, and he suggests higher taxes. He suggests reducing uh, university fees for the middle class. But more broadly, it's an interesting discussion about the role of the state in in the future development of, of Australia. And it is an acknowledgement that Kevin Rudd has not learned anything from his years in politics. Uh, and he does talk about uh, him being on the rising tide and the right side of history. And the idea that capitalism, certainly as we've noted in Australia since the 1980s, is under threat, is under siege, I think is borne out by by Kevin Rudd. And not, as I said, only 250 people have listened to him on SoundCloud. Not that this will necessarily have a huge influence on the Labor Party as such, because these days I think the Labor Party is more left-wing than even Kevin Rudd. But it is a, a, a useful time capsule as to what Kevin Rudd is thinking and to where we've gone right and where we've gone wrong.
2: I think this is a really interesting essay for a couple of reasons, some of which you've raised, John. First of all, I really like Kevin Rudd essays just as a genre. Um, uh, Kevin uh, has <laughs> – a, a genre of what? A, jo- a genre of essays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, there's a couple of things I like about Kevin Rudd essays and 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 uh, and, and I know you, John Roskam, also a big aficionado of, of Kevin Rudd essays going back all the way to his monthly essay in 2009. Which,
1: of course, blamed the IPA for neoliberalism in Australia, and I've still got that press release hanging on my wall. Chris.
2: And has the best <laughs> opening line of an essay in Australian politics. From time to time in human history, there occur events of truly seismic significance, <laughs> events that mark a turning point between one epoch and the next. My, How could you not read on? Was, Unfortunately, that, this was he
0: referring to his own birth? Exactly. Unfortunately, this isn't as
2: compelling as that. But what I like about this essay um, is, is two things. First, it's it's an agenda for a government he will never lead, but it's mm. a really well spelled out Agenda. It's what Kevin Rudd would do if he was running in 2019, and it gives you a vision of um, a particular stream of Labour Party thinking and where it could go. At, at its worst, it's it's um, resentful and angry about Rupert Murdoch and the Tories, if you will, and all this sort of thing. And that and and then it reads like a Wayne Swan thing. But at its best, it's actually not a bad um, consideration of the role of politics in the Labour. And the role of government, there's a lot of discussion
1: about nation building. So he he takes great credit for the NBN without acknowledging its many failures. He takes credit for Gonski without acknowledging it'll make very small difference to uh, educational outcomes. But this idea of nation building is part of Labor's mythology. And I think he does have a a couple of good points. He says, um, what since 2013 have, and I don't like the term conservatives, but we'll call it that for the moment, or slash coalition, what have they put up? And the silence, that's sort of, <laughs> that's not a rhetorical question uh, and, and then there's also discussions again about the role of the media The role about freedom And and again, I'll probably uh, use this from time to time Even Kevin Rudd says the ABC is more green than <laughs> Labor And I've got to email Jared Henderson and tell him that um, yeah, look, John, what did say, you think? Yeah,
3: look, I've got to say I, I had hoped this would be a better essay than it was Because I think it's a good idea that former leaders who are uh, who have led the nation well or badly are in probably the best position to be able to um, give disquisitions on the role of government and how we can improve the role of government, delivery of services, managing foreign policy, regional risks, uh, building national wealth. Unfortunately, it might not be surprised to our listeners that, that I would say something like this, that the first half of his essay, for me, just taints the rest of it. It is so bilious that it's hard to <laughs> yes. it's just it's like, why bother, man? Just <laughs> just get to the guts of it. And you're only really getting to what beef there is in the second half, and even then he can't help himself. Um I, I actually like that he's trying to deal with it, but he just doesn't do a good job of it talking but, about the role of government. And, you know, he doesn't mention things like Personal responsibility, which is, I think, a big thing. And I think we'll touch upon this in our discussion today. What is the role of personal uh, you know, our personal responsibility in the development of policy? Uh, accountability, personal accountability, tax policy, talks about national wealth and prosperity, but doesn't talk about you know, improving Just, educational improving Does the government comes-
1: that he talks about and the sort of government and the sort of Australia that he talks about chime with your experience in parliament and out of parliament?
3: In terms of government... You know, interfering. The, the, go, interfe- interfering and, and
1: the expectation of people, in,
3: in of, of people of government. Absolutely. It's the biggest challenge that we on the right have is to try to persuade the public that uh, you know the better outcomes will be when people take ownership where they can and be accountable for what they do. And I know you've written on this recently and we'll touch on this, but uh, everybody comes to government, everybody comes to MPs with you know, a call for solutions.
0: So even setting this up as uh, he he believes that politics should be a contest of national visions. And as you say, there's 10,000 words on how terrible the uh, so-called conservatives are for not having a national vision. But of course, a true conservative doesn't say, here is my vision for what Australia should be. I will define it because I am so smart and so much more ethical than everybody else and then all of my policies are about directing the country towards that outcome. And the, the counter view of politics was memorably captured by John Howard when they said, well, what's your goal for the country? And he said, I'd like Australians to be relaxed but, and comfortable. But then, we but, then, are,
1: but then for John as a member of parliament, how do you, and, and me as once an aspiring member of parliament, how do you go to the people and say... It's your choice. It's your vision. It's organic. I'm not going to spend your money. I'm going to reduce regulation, and we are going to be a, a community of sex,
2: self-actualized individuals and families. Which how, is, do, which how is, do we do that? Which is why we're being really mean to Kevin Rudd, I, I, I think, here because this essay captures really powerfully the idea that the divide between the labor and the liberal visions of the world, or the so, so how does how
1: does how does John reconcile that? How do, how do you go onto a street corner and say, "I am not here." To fix everything, and, and well, interestingly, so ma- so the How last person you, who
2: tried to do that was Malcolm Turnbull. Well, was so Scott the, in in the um, in the 2016 election, Malcolm Turnbull tried to spell out a vision of the country around innovation, around entrepreneurship, and it fell completely flat. Now, maybe he didn't it actually sell looks it. a bit better now, doesn't it? it if it, it, he's it, on, it, I thought <laughs> yeah. it I thought it looked no, really good but, then. But, 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 but <laughs> compared to Scott Morrison at
1: the National Press Club saying the government will protect you from uh, pedophiles, from stalkers on the web, from domestic violence, from terrorism uh, inside and outside. The government will protect you if someone is trying to rot your sport. Yeah. No, that's, um, <laughs> but, but come to. I want to explore with John, how do you explain that when, as you say, people look to government for the solutions?
3: It's an appeal to values, I think, and it has to be. I mean, I think it's really hard, and I was talking to a good friend of all of ours recently about how do you sell reward for effort, you know, reward for honest effort. In this world now you've got generations coming through particularly younger ones who want to feel like they're contributing to the broader good and so we've got to try to find a way on the on the right to make that more appealing in some way and, I, and, and i've been road testing a lot around you know the dignity of achievement success can't come without real effort or you know achievement can't come without real sacrifice the, it, it's got to be... How does that resonate? Well, well, well it's hard. It's how, hard. Does how, how, how does that test in focus groups? How, how, <laughs> well, when you're talking to school groups... Yep, yeah. ...and you ask them what the top three issues are, and invariably at schools we both know, uh, you will get diversity, asylum seeker policy, climate change. You mean
1: the non-government schools in Melbourne's leafy suburbs? Them, of the and inner the east, government. And yeah. so
3: they're looking to the liberal party and and those on the right of politics to, to be able to respond to these things and admittedly it is very hard but
2: but they have, they they are selling a vision of the future And it's not like we do not have a vision of the future Mm. as well. It's not a government-imposed one. It's not a government-imposed one, but it's one that embraces the exciting potential of the market, the exciting potential of technological change, and automation, initiative and choice, and all the amazing changes that we've seen in the last couple of decades ramped up to 11 over the next couple. We have a vision of the future. And again, to uh, and Malcolm Turnbull was trying to pick on that badly, but he tried uh, to pick on that so and we haven't... So does that and, mean... And in this essay, so does Turnbull. So does that Wright. mean that you can never do it or just Malcolm Turnbull didn't do it well? Well, potentially Malcolm Turnbull didn't do it well. Maybe it was his, it's, it's his a patrician vibe oh, but it's was a not a great vision. Well, well, you
1: know, no politician wants to sell more change.
0: But there's also the... the you don't need uh, a capital V vision on the scale of a... Kevin Rudd but you do like which is almost like a 5 year plan across <laughs> social economic well I am serious. <laughs> yeah. this is the central it's plan it's a 5 year plan plus nanotechnology <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly yeah, yeah, blockchain, yeah, and blockchain the bionic eye blockchain. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah China's in there somewhere no one else has ever thought about China um, but but then again on the other side you don't need to set out that kind of vision and say here's my ideal state and we're going to work towards it but you do need a plan and this this is what we've found uh, the greatest criticism of the Abbott government was that it had a, a great platform for what they were going to do to repeal uh, everything that uh, Rudd and Gillard had done. But then there was no positive platform. And uh, 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 Victorian government, uh, the last Liberal government here, same story. So there is a level at which you do need to actually have a platform. And I think that's the minimum expectation Does it of come voters. to what John said, it's a vision.
1: It's an ambitious and, – and whether it is Kevin Rudd or the Greens, it is a big – bold ambition that sometimes the centre-right lacks.
2: But it's also – so just thinking through the way Rudd frames his essay so that listeners don't have to read it themselves. So he he gives us a list of – Or listen to it. Or listen to it. Or listen to it. For two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Which I no doubt people will do immediately after listening to this. Um, He gives a list of global challenges and I wonder whether the centre-right actually has – the, the arguments ready to roll to tackle those challenges. So for instance, you know, technological change, um, the other the second challenge in his view is climate change, which of course is long long discussed, Global migration flows, geopolitical changes, democratic polarization, um, uh, a, the end of the Christian moral compass is is one of his great challenges as well. He sees secularization as a big challenge. Does the center right have a range of policies ready to roll? of any of the scale of some of these challenges I I
3: think probably not I'm just trying to think as we speak whether we do I don't see a lot of that to, to his credit I think what Rudd says about uh, you know, Christian ethics in the formulation of policy is something I very much welcome and I thought that was that was fitting that he talked about that but he made some extraordinary claims that are a real challenge uh, for those of us on the right because he he makes the bold claim in there that the labor party is the natural home of small business. Yep. Now, I that, is that. Amazing. <laughs> that, that is amazing. <laughs> and maybe red tape should um, be cut. <laughs> I, would have liked, I, I, I would have liked to uh, touch on this before. I would have liked mm. to have seen him deal with how taxation as an instrument of policy can help us achieve those. I thought what he said about uh, regional foreign policy in particular was an effort to try and. Uh, apply, a, if you like, a, an ideological overlay on some things which I don't think easily fit into that. They might in some cases, but I don't think they easily fit into that. And he makes some, I think, just baseless claims that somehow those of us on the right don't, don't understand the, the international challenges we face.
1: Now, I think John's assessment of the absence of the centre-right responding to these arguments is right, because I'd argue in Australia, and we've talked about this a lot at the IPA, the centre-right is psyched out. Uh, whenever the centre right engages in a debate about values or freedoms, uh, the left says, "Oh, you're fighting the culture wars," and the centre right runs away. And this debate about values is is central. and And Rudd dances around. I don't think. And correct me if I'm wrong. And in the twenty thousand words, I did try and read it carefully. I don't think I saw Trump once or saw Brexit once. And he he touches. ...on this discussion about the difference between the elites and the community and and the public. But from his perspective, he's afraid to acknowledge the cleavage. And I think he's right when he talks about a dislocation. But the cleavage between uh, popular will and the public and our leaders is greater than ever. And we're not going to talk about
2: Brexit because the saga continues... But that's the evidence. Is is there reason to believe... So this is an interesting essay from an ideas perspective, but is there reason to believe in, in your assessments that um, the Labor Party right now is thinking along those lines?
0: Well, t- could, can I just add to that question? Because uh, the Labor Party uh, didn't get off scot-free. This won't occasion any controversy because the Labor Party will not respond to it it'll be um, (laughs) what the death by silence only the IPA will talk about it only the IPA will talk (laughs) about it because of course he revisits some of the things that he tried to do which is drastically reduce the power of the union movement Mm -hmm. over the ALP which is uh, perhaps higher than it has been you know in the last five decades Greater than it has been in the last five decades, he's saying we should do something. While union membership shrinks, while the union membership shrinks, and, and the power ed- grows, and and of course he he uh, used to talk like that in his first term as prime minister, and that's why his first term was so short, because they came along and tapped him on the shoulder and said, uh, "Not going to happen, mate," and uh, that's how Ms Gillard became prime minister.
3: Yeah, you know, one thing I, I was struck this week over the franking credits debate was that. We even find it hard now on this side of politics arguing for lower tax <laughs> because people, people are now – we're losing the argument, I fear, to those people who say, well, we'd prefer the government make that choice. Now, I'm reading a, a book on Reagan at the moment between 76 and 80. There's a, a, a book that I ordered from overseas to look at how Reagan – Came back,
0: <laughs> um,
3: but it's interesting because he led the charge no, no on, reason, lower, no on lower on tax, and yet I was thinking as time. I've been working mm. through working through that and thinking, geez, here we are and we're losing a debate on this. Well, now, hopefully we'll win that debate, but but we have to fight. we we have to
1: make it. And again, we have we have talked about this over the years, and we've all um, mentioned the fact that of recent times, the coalition ministers are more interested in vigorously um, prosecuting a case for retrospective superannuation taxes at the federal level, for a bank tax, for Tony Abbott's uh, deficit levy, and it's going to be very difficult to make the argument, as John says, for lower taxes, when I've just rolled off three big taxes, not including things like the backpacker tax, the low-value GST tax, and other taxes,
2: yeah, no, that's right. and, and we're Leaving seen,
1: aside regulation. Yeah, yeah
2: leaving aside <laughs> regulation. And the idea that you could have a genuine reform movement coming out of centre-right politics right now or coming out of the political system right now is, is, is fantasy. We, we don't have the, – the political class do not have an agenda for the genuine deregulation red tape reduction that we will actually require to deal with the challenges that Kevin Rudd sets out. We don't have that agenda. Now, I think, um, uh, that, you know, organisations like the IPA have been spelling out what that agenda would look like, but you need political strength and you need people in parliament who care about these issues. This government has not done so.
1: Well, we're sitting next to someone who was in parliament caring about this until a few months ago.
2: Yes, no, no not 20,000
1: words. Well, uh, now, ha- now,
0: <laughs> now he has time to write a 20,000 word rejoinder. <laughs> um, before,
1: before you return to the service of the people. Oh <laughs> uh. yes, no, well, I mean, are you going to call this the, your 20,000 words the wilderness years? Or? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I might have to wait a while to see. They might continue for some time. <laughs> Let's see. Here we go. You mentioned a bank tax in there, John Roskam, uh, and we're still seeing the Hain Royal Commission's recommendations reverberate around and impacting some of the... Uh, Corporate boardrooms. And I know
1: you've previously spoken about some of the recommendations in in detail. Um, Since the last episode of the podcast, of course, um, uh, the chairman and the CEO of NAB have resigned uh, in response to a a, um, number of sentences of adverse comment in the commissioner's report. I think their resignation is entirely misplaced. I think the idea that as a witness you can't defend your institution and that you can't defend uh, the staff of that institution and that you must prostrate yourself in front of the Royal Commissioner for fear of uh, an adverse finding I think is very, very dangerous and I think it shouldn't have been the CEO and the chairman of NAB that should have gone. It should have been the board for allowing such a response but leaving um, that aside I uh, wrote in my Finn review column last week about Georgia Clark and um, it was one of the pieces that I got more response on than anything of of late um, and I began the column by saying well if anything funny has come out of the Royal Commission it is of course a story that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald and I devoted my 700 words to the story of 24 year old Georgia Clark. Uh, who got a $18,500 bank loan unsecured from the CBA and went on a European holiday with it. She paid off some uh, expenses. Uh, She was working part-time. Then her circumstances changed. And then when she went to the bank and said, "Um, can you change my loan? The bank said no. And the heading of the article was, I'm amazed they approved me. CBA lashed for lending to the naive. And I took the opportunity to point out, exactly as John has just identified, that discussion of personal responsibility of caveat emptor, of the fact that you take on an obligation and that you should pay back a loan, seems to be entirely absent. And um, uh, what also provoked me was, surprisingly, perhaps in the comment section of the Sydney Morning Herald, there were a couple of hundred comments, nearly all of them telling Georgia... To get a life, one reader commented, (laughs) so you got a loan um, that you asked for. Someone else said, do people ever take responsibility um, for their own actions? And I finished off the piece uh, quoting reader Joe, J-O, could be man or woman, uh, who engaged in some broader social commentary. Taking, talking on a mobile phone whilst driving is someone else's fault because they didn't stop me. Taking illegal drugs is someone else's fault because they didn't stop me. Speeding is someone else's fault because speed cameras only raise revenue. And then Sir T, whoever that might be, reflected. Genuinely encouraged by the common sense responses here, as I as I was. And then the final line was: taking responsibility for
2: one's actions may become a new trend. This is one of the interesting um, fallouts of the royal commission because uh, I described the royal commission last week as an exercise in catharsis. So it's not; it was not instituted in order to solve specific public policy problems like previous financial inquiries. It was, um, as we occasionally have in Australia, it was an opportunity for everyone to get everybody to get stuff off their. Off, off their chest just yeah, to and complain, give blood and to give <laughs> blood to, to, to complain about how they had been hard done by. But the problem is that the government and and in fact the royal Commission itself looks at these sad stories and uh, or, or looks at these tales of people who feel that they've been hard done by and feel that they have to convert that into policy. They have to turn that into a – not just not just policies, not just legislation, but principles through – by which we might regulate. For millions of others. For millions of others. But idea, so they're, they're sort of restructuring the entire goal of not just regulation but the, because the of, political because system. Because a
1: 19-year-old Georgia Clark who took an $18,000 loan to go
2: to Europe and then couldn't pay it back. Yeah, look, and she probably had a great time. And, you know, in in, in years come when she's paid it all off, she'll think, oh, that worked out quite well. uh, (laughs) They've got to avoid overcorrecting. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, uh, They've they've got to avoid overcorrecting, but also we've just got this exercise in um, complaint is taking us further and further away from what we need the government to do with its regulation of the financial sector, which is open more opportunities
1: and and rather and look and there was some certainly investigation of ASIC and APRA uh, in that, but it was nowhere uh, as much as necessary. And if any politician needs to uh, a further education in the laws of unintended consequences, you can look at what's happened to the National Party. So it was the, it was the Nationals uh, who who pushed this, who forced this upon the coalition. Uh, I think the, the position of the coalition for a long time was that this wasn't necessary. There are sufficient laws um, and processes to deal with misfeasance in the bank. we got the Royal Commission, so what's happened to the nationals? Uh, a key base of their uh, constituency, mortgage brokers, have been smashed. How does that work?
3: Mm. John, the, broad- the, broader fear, the broader fear I've got out of this process, and I, I, look, I, I looked with some horror at some of the practices, financial institutions that engage in, so I'll posit that, put that to the side for the moment is that we've now entered an age where um, terms like, uh, and Rudd used it in his essay, you know, his (laughs) attack on big business, that uh, they've got a licence to exist or a licence to operate, which is code, we we all know around this table, that's code for uh, unlimited grounds for intervening. And the leadership of large corporates uh, in the finance sector and other sectors are going to have to do a lot of work over the next few years to push back on that. Uh, and and I think they need to do a better job. And I've been thinking a lot about this, at arguing why profit uh, earned appropriately. In other words, not by breaking no, the law or unethical, but yeah. profits earned appropriately and invested wisely in the organisation or shareholders or whatever is a good thing. Because right now, I I I. I you know, I'm dismayed every time I see another attack on a large organisation that's
1: successful. But, but, John, as a as a senior Liberal MP, you would have been stampeded by CEOs and and chairmen of large corporates coming to support your cause and wanting to support <laughs> freedom and to support financially and otherwise the 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 voice of common sense and the voice of free markets and the voice of responsibility. How did you deal with all that money that you were provided From with <laughs> by the corporates <laughs> to
3: fight for capitalism, John? Um, the largest of those those companies, Tumbleweed uh, <laughs> Incorporated. <laughs> uh, crickets uh, are not. Yeah, um, but what, what do you uh, reckon happened? They're scared. They are d- they've, they've become monstered by the other side. Um, they don't quite know what they want. They don't quite know how to argue a case uh, for what they're doing and – you know, I remember going to a, a boardroom lunch with some business leaders. It wasn't a, a, a donor lunch or anything like that. It was just a, a discussion about various things and you could just feel the fear in the room. And this was before the, the Royal Commission had started. Uh, you know, we know now that a lot of them face activists, shareholders, Th- that whole space is changing. And this is part of that. Uh, I think there's, as I said before, a real risk of overcorrecting. And just on your point, John, about... Um, uh, Thorburn and um, Henry. I, I found it a bit odd that the commission felt it necessary to say, effectively, <laughs> we don't believe you're going to address these issues. Yeah, I, yeah. I just thought It just seems an odd.
2: I mean, a royal commissioner can deliver whatever
3: finding he or she wants, but really,
2: yeah, no, it's wi- that, it's wildly inappropriate because it's 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 a quasi judicial forum, but it's not a it's not a court. Yeah. it's it's not a um they don't make rulings it's a inquiry natural with, justice doesn't apply no natural justice uh, i I have I have long-standing complaints about the existence of the royal and we commission, we, we have a argued, royal commission as an institution. But, but as an
1: organization we have argued against the dangers of of royal commissions and very rarely they may be appropriate but it's not clear exactly that one was necessary other than as Chris you said because the public
2: wanted blood. Yeah yeah they're they're judicial weapons so they're they're wildly inappropriate for um, almost every question that they they tackle but certainly it's wildly inappropriate to take what is basically the opinion of and lawyers are wonderful I know Mm. you're both lawyers but the opinion of a group of lawyers about the shape of the future economy and, and, (laughs) and,
1: and and a former high court judge arguing that he didn't believe trailing commissions were appropriate and and he believed that consumers should not have the choice as to whether to pay up front or otherwise uh, to a mortgage broker to, to uh, help find the best loan. That is entirely inappropriate. And then what's really scary about the democratic process is Labor signs up to all the recommendations without barely knowing what they are. Uh, the coalition does nearly the same. And then the public response is, oh, well, you have to follow the royal commissions. Who appointed Ken Henry? as Chief Commissar of the Australian economy. Yeah, look and... and oh, so, sorry.
2: That was a Freudian <laughs> slip. <laughs> Who appointed <laughs> uh, Ken Hay? <laughs> Although Ken Henry was Ken a Ken Henry was, was that. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, swings and roundabouts. Um, Yeah. And it sets the, and and one of the things that we've seen over the last week or so is it sets a sort of the neutral position. The neutral position is you have to do everything that the Royal Commission said. So now the Greens go further and they say, oh, well, no. I mean, the Royal Commission, obviously we're going to do all that, but we're also going to put on executive pay caps. We're going to structurally separate the banks. We're going to do all these sorts of things that really undermine some of the fundamentals of our financial system and, and the fundamentals of our what we used to describe as our private enterprise system.
3: And it's a symptom, uh, I think, of an increasing gridlock. I mean, political gridlock's not new. I mean, we've had it before. It's quite welcome But sometimes. the Royal Commission is... and, and I. Putting aside the, current, the the Royal Commission here, they are increasingly... Look at state and federal Royal Commissions now. They're becoming more common because there's just no way through the impasse. So governments go, okay, we'll outsource it, you do it. We'll live with the results. We'll sign up to the results before we know what they are. <laughs> but, and, and that's extraordinary. But, and, and that happened at a state level too. And,
1: and, and you touch on a theme that is something we've talked about on the podcast, the role for experts, the, I- the idea that for all the fault of elected politicians, Labor, Liberal, Green, anything else... I'd much rather an elected politician make a decision than an expert. So how, how do you deal with that? Because the public are now not trusting uh, people like you. They're trusting experts.
3: It's a really good point, John. I know it's a bit off topic, but the example is apposite. Is I remember giving a press conference on s- some uh, comments the government, the state government made on the drug injecting facility. Don't want to get in the whole space. Put aside the merits for one minute. They'd come out a few days after it had opened and said it was a success and here's the doctor to say it was a success. <laughs> now I went out and said, look, we're just not going to accept, no disrespect to the, the medical officer concerned. don't know him, respect him, but we're in no position to
2: accept It's been going for two that- days. <laughs> and
3: the, the response from media and on social media, and even in the months that followed, was trenchant. How dare you question the ethics of a doctor? Now, I wasn't (laughs) questioning the ethics of a doctor. It was just, I'm not going to accept those figures. And there's a whole lot of questions around whether the policy is working and how you measure its success. None of that mattered. And, and And it's part of why these Royal Commissions are effective politically. People go, oh... That's why government cynically, you know, will roll out someone in uniform during a crisis. So there's there's the person in uniform, so you can believe them. But, but, but,
1: a- but so just on that, and, and again, what scares me is the further discussion about we've got to outsource more decisions that are previously made by our democratically elected parliament. So, of course, John Hewson over the years has talked about why doesn't fiscal policy go to a panel of, of experts? Infrastructure policy is such. I remember uh, there was a debate about uh, an aspect of the school curriculum and, and here in Victoria I remember um, uh, the minister saying, the Labor minister saying, well, we're leaving it to our experts. Why do I allow some 22-year-old teaching graduate to decide what is being taught
2: to my kid? Isn't yeah. that interesting yeah. though because Hewson presented probably the most ideologically <laughs> consistent or one of the most ideologically uh, strong um, agendas to the Australian public. And I'm just thinking back to the Kevin Rudd essay as well. And so the Kevin Rudd's essay is all about we need national values and we need egalitarianism to drive our policy. So when he's writing this grand theory of change and his grand theory of the future of Australian politics, it's values-driven. But in government, he was the most extraordinary technocrat. Mm. He would hand over major policy decisions to um, uh, expert panels like, if you recall, the Preventative Health Task Force, which eventually gave us um, – a lot of nanny state policies. No, like summit. Was it a hundred the, or a thousand? The wonderful 2020 summit. The, the one summit. that no one from the IPA yeah. was invited No one, to about <laughs> no one from the <laughs> IPA was invited. Um, uh, uh, and isn't it interesting that they they come out of government and then they're, oh, no, well, don't worry about the experts. It's all about values. But back in,
3: yeah. in there. Yeah, there's, there's something deeper also that I've noticed and you, you perhaps have as well that's not apparent necessarily in the broader debate is that our conception of – the public service and agencies of government has changed before our eyes without anybody even realising it. And I would get really worked up and it was very difficult to say something because you you caught an enormous response that, that takes you off your main game. Uh, that's not to justify what I did, but I, I felt it was just a, not, a war could, it was not a war I could win. But I would it's look true. at agencies of government basically campaigning for issues and – I remember once saying in the parliament in a state context that we had announced a policy as a t- s- state opposition that we would implement. And there was an agency of government which <laughs> – and it's the same at federal and state level. They're supposed to be apolitical, independent. Canning it. policy canning no. <laughs> it? And it's like, hang on a minute. I mean, whatever happened to the – And that's and only the visible bit, John. It's, it it's deep state. This and is so, the deep state. Uh, very much so. So when you, How did you, when respond? you talk – Oh well, I was I was diplomatic, but um, I, I kind of took it. Um, I took it to a certain level. and I thought I, I just can't. We're coming a bit too close to the. Like, that's not a justification for it. I know, but it goes to your point, John, about um, you know uh, this this issue about a mandate, a government being elected to do something, and even if you do have the will to do it, the mentality and the psychology of a lot of senior public servants is we'll do what we think is appropriate, and we'll campaign on it. We will we will have a social media policy which is active. It is partisan at times. It's it's surprising how partisan some and, – and this is the same at a federal level as well. I would follow a lot of these
2: uh, agencies and think
3: that is a clear breach of public now, sector now, values. Now, that is, that is – that
2: is how would you respond to this? That is an intentional feature of the Westminster system. It's not supposed to be, That either, you have a permanent public service. Oh, sorry, that is, yes. A, a permanent public service that represents the interests of the, the, the government or state quite separately to – the political. No, I don't think that this is a good feature, but I think that may be a deep-seated feature of our political system. That
3: that they should serve it apolitically. Well, well, no, they they, they try to serve to it.
2: They they try to serve it apolitically, but they also represent the long-run interests of the state. And you'll see arguments made, particularly from the left, you'll see arguments made that that um, representation of long-run interests of the state. They've got their ideas about the correct. Public policy. They have expertise, so they expertise. argue, that, uh, historical yeah. knowledge. That, but, that tension between the politically uh, – the elected and the unelected is actually a feature, not a bug of the system. So, I,
1: and, and we promised John that we wouldn't ask him any questions to challenge any future pre-selection, but I will ask him one. Isn't then the Washington system more honest? You know, spill the most senior 2,000 position. Sorry, six thousand. <laughs> or in Australia, the, the, the uh, parallel would be you spill the secretary and the deputy secretary. So you'd spill, say, uh, the top two or three levels of, of the public service to acknowledge the politicisation of the public service. Uh, anything when the coalition does it, the Labor Party does it, the coalition then does it in return. And we acknowledge the politicisation of the system and and the process and we make it more transparent so for example we have more parliamentary and this is something again i've argued we have parliamentary hearings senior advisors and advisors and ministerial staff bear huge powers and responsibilities we call them up um should we just acknowledge that westminster as we know it from the 1890s is broken and, and go to something a bit more
3: transparent that would actually be closer to what happens in practice. <laughs> <laughs> it,
2: it is. And, and when, when, when so, the yes, end, we should have no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. no, we do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. sh- but, but my yeah. view
3: is it shouldn't be that way. And what I'd prefer to, to see is that we revert back as far as we can to where you've got you know, a public service that lives up, whether it's the APS or the VPS, hmm. that's acting in accordance with the policies that are in place now. But when you look at um, what happened in 2014, uh, it was 2014 when... The Andrews government came into power. They just said, "See you later." And there, no, and there was no, there was no publicity. No I mean, people can. were told
1: to, I uh, understand, clean out their desk on the Saturday and Saturday night,
3: Sunday morning. There was no publicity. About. And and at a personal level, and I know you might know mm. some of them too, guys. But a couple of the um, public servants they walked out the door very unceremoniously. Are people who served governments, federal and state? Liberal and Labor alike, with distinction, for years. Uh, if anything, the Bailey government was um, upbraided for keeping people mm. in place, Now, that was a good. Or a I was, bad I was thing, one of the Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it's fairly sure I've got a yeah. cold. Yeah. the way our system <laughs> should work is in accordance with the policy. The way it actually does work, uh, I think, is closer to what happens in America.
0: Indeed. Speaking of people walking out the door, there's been <laughs> <laughs> mass resignations at, uh, at Melbourne University Someone Press. Someone who served
1: the Australian public
0: long and with a distinguished career. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't where I was going. Was it? But, uh, <laughs> no, I was actually thinking of Melbourne University Press, uh, which is the publishing arm of Melbourne University, which has seen uh, some board-level resignations in the last week.
2: Yeah, Why so is got, this not so a uniquely parochial Melbourne story, so this So as I was about to say, <laughs> this is the most Melbourne story and, and no, no, we no, promise...
0: No. Just before, Chris, I checked on their website. Not only do they, in their true crime publications, not only do they do Melbourne's Gangland, they have a series. They have Gangland Sydney, Gangland Queensland, gangland Australia. It's not a parochial publisher. <laughs>
2: so Louise Adler the um, head of uh, Melbourne University Publishing has stepped down along with a whole bunch of board members and as you can imagine this sets the um, Australian intellectual scene such as it is on fire. Um, MUP over the last couple of years has really established itself um, as a popular publisher. It's a it's it's a university press. Um, university presses are traditionally um, published just scholarly works that they sell for insane prices um, and MUP over the last couple of years has been um, selling a lot more or publishing a lot more books by politicians, such as, you know, famously The Latham Diaries, Tony Abbott's Battle Lines, but even by, you know, Christopher Pine, Bob Carr, Tony Windsor, John Brumby, basically every politician with a profile has managed to to get a memoir out. I, now, I, I think this, I'm an MUP publisher myself, I uh, sorry, MUP author myself, I've published um, with them as well, and I think they do pretty good work. I think there's a real role for them. But what is interesting about this story is how it reflects Australia's intellectual life in 2019 and it is so dominated by um, the, the political class so we filter so many of our ideas in Australia through the memoirs of someone like Barnaby Joyce who I'm sure his memoirs are fantastic but the memoirs of a Barnaby Joyce or a Christopher Pine or something like that a Kevin and I Rudd. A, a Kevin Rudd and I think it gives us and you know to, to attack poor old Kevin again I, I think it it gives us a really shallow um, worldview, a really shallow intellectual. Isn't that debate. just a function of our size? I'm not sure it is a function of our size. I think it's a function of particularly um, on the right, we don't have a, a really strong intellectual movement, and we and I know that we've dealt with this. In the past, how can we bring up a new generation of sort of thinkers and support those thinkers in order to to fight those deeper battles? So that we don't have to now. rely on MUP publishing us. Well, so that we don't need to rely on politicians to be the um, uh, to be the backstop, the intellectual. And, as you say,
1: given we have a former politician on the program now. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't. You like being powerful. <laughs> you, you, you like being a public. Ind- I think we could now say you're almost a public intellectual. Oh,
3: public, that, public uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I haven't it. heard how the you, uh, second epithet. But how, yeah. how do you respond? Uh, look, I, I, I have to say, I I, I think the the new uh, chancellor sh- or vice chancellor should be given a go on this. And I, I was, uh, you know, the the mass resignations. I wasn't. Effect- I, I thought it was a bit, I don't know, petulant. I've got to say. I thought, you know, someone new comes along, wants to shake things up a bit. You should give it a go, and and you'd know better than I. But if those um, scholars are finding it hard to get published. I mean, I can understand why MUP has to be sort of formally, you know, focused on them as well. Um, in terms of the broader issue about whether we've got enough people on the right, I mean, if the, if the quality we've got coming out of our side of politics is good enough, it'll find a publisher, won't it? I mean,
2: yeah. Look, I, I think what I think our issue that we have at the moment in Australia, not 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 on the right, not on the left, but in Australia, is a very very shallow intellectual discussion about political ideas. And I, I was in Canada um, a couple of years ago and um, they were talking through some of the rather incredible um, taxation reforms that they've done there. Um, uh, so for instance, they've indexed tax brackets um, to inflation. So um, so we don't get the um, uh, bracket creep over time. Now, uh, when when I heard about this, I was like, "My, that is the most incredible thing!" And they're like, "Yeah, of course we did that. That's that's a normal range thing." Uh, but if of course,
1: you... provinces have income
2: taxing powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, that's a good example. So, but but the the limitation or the the narrow band in which we're allowed to discuss ideas in Australia is really quite remarkable. If you raised indexing tax brackets in Australia, that would be seen as the most radical proposal. Just like the um, should states be able to but, raise something? But there's, income,
1: there's something further tax. which is in. Australia, if, if politicians, current or former, uh, don't greenlight an idea, it doesn't get discussed. If the public service and public sector doesn't do it, uh, the same applies. And that is a broader question which relates to the power and weight of centre-right ideas in Australia, I think has been too long dominated by the political process and been dominated by the liberal party because ideas in Australia are refracted through uh, the electability of the party nominally representing the centre-right, which is why um, I'm so excited about what is now happening on the centre-right in Australia. You have more of a Liberal party, you have more of a Conservative party, more of a Libertarian party, Um, and and I think that's a reflection of what's happened at MUP, which is uh, they publish Politicians, Politicians Tell Us How to Live.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. But, that's but right. I mean,
1: John, do you think – and I've again, yeah. we've spoken about this. Does the Liberal Party have too big a say in centre-right thinking in Australia? Or not enough?
3: Look, it, it may well do because – I don't mean that as a criticism, mm. as a fact of life in some ways, but I can tell you at a personal level, uh, your ability to expound upon ideas um, does uh, become somewhat enlarged when you're no longer in parliament. <laughs> 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 you do have much more freedom to speak and you're just – it's not necessarily that you you sell out or you um, uh, you you know you you lose the courage of your convictions. You are you are trying to entertain and, and manage a political campaign, which you can't do if you also want to be freely intellectual. And so, I, I, you know, at the risk of being in heated agreement, I think you're, you're right that political parties, if they're the filter through which ideas get expressed, uh, then that's why isn't there more of a premium on um, center right mavericks.
1: So we have center right mavericks who like more regulation and banking rule commissions and other things. Why isn't there a a premium on center
3: right libertarians
2: on 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 classical liberals? Yeah, this, this is an issue that we've had for a long time, and I, I suspect a big part of it is I think there's two things. There's there's the opportunity for getting a ministry is it's much it's much more appealing now than it may have been in the past. The um, the salary bump you get for for moving into a shadow ministry or into a ministry is actually a lot higher, and so people go into parliament. And and John, I'll, I'd like your reflections on this. People go into parliament much or try more, to go into or parliament. try to go into parliament yeah, not, much more. Not mentioning anyone. <laughs> much more. <laughs> much more ambitiously with the idea that they're going to be um, a, a, a senior minister rather than that maverick and rather than happily... Rather back than, back Burt benches, Kelly. Rather than Bert Kelly. Rather than a Burt Kelly, rather than And John Hyde had, had positions, but rather than a John Hyde um, uh, to actually mount the case from the backbenchers. Maybe the backbenchers aren't as powerful as they used to be, but I also think it's much more attractive to be in a ministerial position. And, and one of the mm. points that federal MPs um, often make to me now... When
1: I say, why aren't you arguing for uh, smaller government, lower taxes and less regulation uh, against your um, uh, parliamentary colleagues? And they'll say, well, you've got to understand uh, that the ministry and parliamentary secretaries is now up to a third of of the party room. And when a leader says, let's have a bank tax and a third of the the party room is the ministry supporting it uh, under any condition, um, that's very hard then to overturn that. Which country. comes back to the American argument, which is
3: um, you would want more people coming from outside of politics. Yeah, th- th- there's a lot of truth in that. I remember uh, one of the backbenchers, even in opposition, um, lamenting an issue uh, <laughs> because he said, when you do the numbers, everyone in shadow cabinet makes up nearly half of the room. So well, I'm not going to win an <laughs> argument. So, so it's true. But I think, how do I mean, you break know, that up? What's do problem?
1: we want to break? I mean, I'd argue you want to break it up. How do you? How do you- Look, I,
3: I've, I, I personally have never had an issue with people crossing the floor. Yeah. I actually don't have a problem with that. And we go bananas. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I, I want to say in, in the Liberal Party, uh, and I guess in the Labor mm. Party it's a bit more um, entrenched because of their their pledge, but you know, we go nuts and the media goes nuts if somebody decides to abstain or, you know, and um, that's why it's refreshing when you get these, uh, what we call free votes on issues, because finally get... You see people come alive, the colour comes back to the face. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's like that. I can get rid of that, that drip in my arm and I can go and vote the way I want to. And it's it's liberating. And I just wish we had a culture. Maybe we have to road test so a bit of this. Can maybe. I
1: ask you about, because I think this is a really interesting question about free votes. Um, and I think there's a good argument for more yeah. free votes. And I share your views about crossing the floor or at least expressing an opinion and taking it up to the line, even if if you might not cross that line. Why do we get a free vote, for example, on euthanasia, but not lower taxes? Why do we get a, a free vote on heroin injecting rooms, but not freedom of speech? So, um, I would argue that Why do we if... get a plebiscite on gay marriage and
2: not lower taxes? That's right.
1: Mm. So I'm looking so, at you, John. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you have, have to answer. Yeah, yeah, for you, this. you have to you have to answer for the political class.
3: <laughs> I, I, I would put it this way: I reckon that that. Um, it developed as an exception. That's probably why it's happened like that. It's, you know, we all vote the the same way we do and that's party discipline, but a couple of these issues are just too bloody hard (laughs) and we're just going to have to do this. And, you know, you know the people (laughs) in the the federal parliamentary party and the state parliamentary party and um, you know that there are a couple who, wouldn't put each other out if they were on fire. You know? <laughs> yeah, they're on the same I, party. Yeah. yeah, no, they're, they're not other side. But, yeah, they but sit next you, to each other. You know, and I would often think in a room and you joke around with a few people thinking, how would such and such and such see this issue? And you could, you could never get them to agree. I think it is it is a function of history and, and parties. I personally would like to see more of that because I think, you know, what's, what's the fear in it? Um, it, particularly if you're in opposition, uh, you can manage the politics and the media around it, but it's actually more uplifting and people appreciate it more. Uh, I think.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I don't like the idea that we have the the only conscience vote you might have or the only thing that we might be so deeply divided by is a social policy issue. Whereas, in fact, the, some of the deepest issues we have right now are the um, the shape of our economy, mm. the freedom of speech. Um, Climate change, Dare I say. say. <laughs> um, to pick the elephant yeah. in the room, yeah. <laughs>
0: And now we'll move on to that part of the show where we ask our panellists what they've been reading, watching or listening to. Chris Burke, what have you been reading, watching or listening to?
2: So I've been listening to another podcast actually called The Dropout. This is – it's not a a bad podcast but it's really interesting – for the topic and for the book that it's partly based on. This is on um, Theranos, the um, medical ah. device company that proposed to um, be able to make dozens of even hundreds of medical tests off a tiny Drop of blood. The founder of this company was Elizabeth Holmes. She was allegedly an expert. She was an expert. <laughs> um, she at the uh, in 2015 she was rated as her net wealth at 4.5 billion dollars. Huge, fettered around the world. Um, turns out it was all a massive scam. Um, the company they couldn't do anything that they promised to do. Even though that she was standing on the stage being interviewed by Bill Clinton, she was showing Joe Biden through her offices. On their board, they had James Madison, George Schultz, the top people. Turns out the company was just a complete house of cards, and when it was revealed, it collapsed. Now the book is actually a lot better than the podcast. The book is by the book is called Bad Blood by John Carreyou. And it did WSJ Channel. start this? Wall Street Journal really really picked it up and John Carrey, who was the journalist who did. I, it's a, it, so there's two things. It's a great book and you should definitely What's read What's it called? It. Uh, it, the book is called Bad Blood, but the podcast is by ABC News so in the if, US. If, it's if, it's if you're planning job.
0: to defraud investors, this if is the way to do it. <laughs> this yeah.
2: is, well, no, for a while, for a while. <laughs> she had a private jet and all that sort of thing. It is, it is, however, really interesting, and they don't go into that, in the, um, in the culture in which Theranos was able to operate. So the incredibly complex regulatory environment in the United States. They still managed to navigate this. They still managed to roll out devices despite not being approved by the FDA. They, w- but isn't also, that a good thing? Well, in this case, <laughs> in in this case, they go, they had to go through. So all you're these. arguing for the FDA? No, I'm certainly not. I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not. But what is, what it, the environment in which they entered was this incredibly highly regulated, incredibly expensive world that they promised to just solve with one drop of blood, a um, a really complex environment that they were just gonna they, they were just gonna fix. It's no wonder everybody put so much hope. And effort into that thing because they were going to solve with a free US market healthcare. solution. It was going to be a free market solution, solve the US healthcare problems in 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 one. So one we should soon. lament her decline. No, no, I don't think we should lament her. It's a great story. It's a great story, but it tells us a lot about Silicon Valley culture. It tells us a lot about our desperation to see magical solutions to so, deep regulatory problems. And, and, and also,
3: problems. our blind faith that more regulation will just work and bureaucracy will work and here you have the most regulated medical and therapeutics regime in the world on the planet and yet you can still have such an egregious breach of of so many regulations and it just brings me to a point and I often would see it in different debates where uh, if you were to ask, you know, is a program Government regulates or, or runs successful or meeting its KPIs. You'll never get to the truth because <laughs> who, who, who controls the metrics of it? Yeah. Government. You'll just ne- and so it, it tells me that you can have more and more regulation doesn't always work if you don't have the right way to measure success so
1: what's the dropout you mentioned
2: so was- the dropout is the podcast which um, the podcast based on the book and what's the nice podcast about it, of the book there's a podcast. well the podcast is a follow-up sort of and it's got all the depositions so you can listen to them try to defend themselves so,
0: John Basuto. Uh
3: look I, I've just finished reading a, a recent biography on um, Richard Nixon someone I'm just fascinated by uh, by John Farrell um, and for those of you listening uh, in um, in deference to Nixon we're going to um, get rid of 18 minutes of the, uh, the, <laughs> <of> the, <podcast>. <laughs> <laughs> the Missing eighteen podcast. So, but what, I, the reason I thought
2: I'd just mention it because it just got very offensive. blank. Um,
3: the reason I wanted to bring it up is, um, I'm, I've always been fascinated in, in our own failings and fallibility, uh, in politics and Nixon is just a case study in that how somebody who was just and and the book allows you to see into his mind and the the searing experiences he had as a kid growing up his resentment to you know people of wealth and the Ivy Leaguers and all the rest of it uh, and how it affected outcomes at the end and um um, there's so much resentment and anger in this piece. It, it's hard to look at the other stuff sometimes. You're, you're trying to analyse what's going through his mind as he's writing this stuff. But I just thought it was a, a really interesting book, uh, 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 just another glimpse into how our own fallibility, and particularly those in politics, affects the ability to even carry what out What conclusion these debates. did you come to on Nixon? How did he do
1: it? I mean, I've, I've read my share of Nixon um, books and he was, as you say, he had issues but he worked so hard. I mean, he was everywhere. <laughs> he was all a crook, but he was a very yeah. Doctor. No, no, no. <laughs> but 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 raising money, work, working as we'd say in Australia, working the branches. And and ideologically, he would chop and change. And I've always been confused when you you, you talk to um, young student activists of the centre right on campus, and somehow Nixon, because he didn't like the left, uh, is is a hero for them. And you say, well, just tell me about uh, Nixon and the EPA. Tell me about uh, Nixon and price controls. Tell me about Nixon and anything economics,
3: which was bad.
1: Yeah. How do you take
3: Nixon? Uh, a contradiction. Uh, he, I, was, I was really fascinated to read the passages on his involvement in the Civil Rights Bill. Uh, 1957. It's interesting because you're absolutely right about the EPA and the the price controls, which he was heavily criticised for, even the opening to China. But I was interested to read, uh, because of public perceptions about where Nixon stood and where Johnson and Kennedy stood on civil rights, there was actually Nixon who played a big role in that 57 bill going through, and it was actually Kennedy and Johnson because they wanted to tie up the South, or actually... Keen on amendments that Would have limited the scope of that civil rights Legislation in the late 50s and It's just what
1: drove Nixon to do I wasn't aware of that
3: what well it's actually You know what you know what the other thing that's interesting about The book and it's not the only book that deals with this obviously There's there's, um, books galore on it But the history of the Republican Party and the transition it has been going through. So it was the champion of civil rights, obviously, uh, from the time of Lincoln and then right through to um, the Southern strategy, I guess. And then it sort of swapped over in terms of the South. So um, his his tenure, uh, even though he had that hiatus between, what was it, 60 and 68, he was very much a figure. I mean, a driving force in the Republican Party, even through that period. But it's it's a, a really good chronicle of the ups and downs of the Republican Party. So he was committed in some ways to civil rights? He certainly was early on. And I think that what the book is is really intimating is that he, he sold out on that. I, mean, I think that's a bit unfair. But, um, you know, the Southern strategy probably sits in juxtaposition to, you know, his, his very strong advocacy in the 50s for civil rights changes. John Roscombe. Um, My comment is also
1: American. I got an email um, a few days ago from a wonderful IPA member and the email was headed uh, Howard Marks and Economics and Beer and I thought it was (laughs) an email. I will open this email. And I I, I wanted to open it. It didn't go into the spam folder luckily and I had heard of Howard Marks because you see uh, this smiling photo of a drug dealer uh, on the covers of books in, uh, in airports. But it wasn't Howard Marks, the, uh, the British drug dealer. It was um, a note about Howard Marks, the American billionaire investor from Oaktree. And he does what a number of billionaire investors do. And I suppose Warren Buffett is, is um, the best example of this. Every couple of months or half a year, year, um, they decide to commit their uh, thoughts to not a Kevin Rudd-length essay, um, but an essay to investors of 10 or 20 pages long. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, um, Howard Marks put out a, a note talking about the dangers of, of the tariff wars and reiterating that uh, free trade is is good for people, especially those on low incomes. Um, but then he reiterated a point and that isn't being made often enough, which is that the – the and we can argue the definition of populism as and we could talk about that for a couple of weeks, but uh, his, his take is uh, that we have to be careful that the populism that's good – and there are good aspects of populism, doesn't turn into an anti-capitalist crusade. And of course, reading this, it was interesting to see just how um, preoccupied he and so many others are um, with the Bernie Sanders, the Ocasio-Cortez arguments, um, the the argument uh, that the wealthy can be taxed to any Extent And then he draws a, a final conclusion, which we know, but which is um, well worth saying, which is the dangers of majoritarianism are that democracies decline when those in the majority who tax the minority um, decide to tax the minority too much. Um, and this connects to our discussion about capitalism and the consequences of the Hainwell Commission to Kevin Rudd's views on on, on taxing and spending. And uh, I'd, I'd urge anyone to, to go on the web. You can just Google um, Howard Marks, oak tree political reality meets, meets economic reality. And and it's just a statement um, that for all of the ills of the, of the current system, there is actually no better system.
2: But isn't the problem then, the, the reason that we're facing the uh, AOCs and um, uh, and the sort of socialist revival isn't the reason mm. because we've pushed out the boundaries of potential political dispute. So on the one hand, we have to deal with populism and or, or right of centre populism, I should say. Right of centre populism. On the other hand, we have to deal with left of centre populism. Um, we're not having the same... Um, discussions that we used to have about just, you know, marginal corporate income tax changes. Plus
1: plus no experience of socialism. And again, he quotes American figures and our friends at the CIS have done uh, similar studies here in Australia on the seeming uh, interest and affection of young people for socialism in the absence of not knowing or experiencing what socialism is, which is one of the reasons why later in the year, I'm hoping that the IPA will uh, announce a tour of an expert on Venezuela to actually explain what the consequences of socialism are. So if you have no experience of socialism, if you have 28 years of un- uninterrupted economic growth, that any spending is affordable, any tax rise is affordable, plus then this populi- uh, populism and a concern about stagnating wages and the elites, um, you are going to get an anti-capitalist backlash, which is probably 20 years in the coming after the 1980s. On the, on
2: the socialism point, I think the, the a lot of people hear the word socialism and think okay if we enact the policies of venezuela we will get the results of denmark um now (laughs) uh, when when it is just totally the other so so denmark we can we now describe for some reason rather than social democratic a lot of young people say oh that's that's socialism and socialism is all through the scandinavian countries sweden norway they're all socialist in some way but then they're proposing these sort of venezuelan level policies um of a green new deal massive um uh, spending massive taxation massive nationalization and that sort of thing which it does not describe that that social democratic quite benign perfectly lovely um it's not my sort of um uh, political system that i prefer but you know sweden and denmark and so forth are fine
3: yeah um, business and political leaders i think you're going to have to do a lot better i touched on this earlier things like profit um, Uh, executive remuneration you know at the if you don't do this then government will intervene and they're already starting to intervene to dictate even further they already do some Uh, what large companies in particular large employers and um, unless that can be done better I I really struggle to see how that voice is not going to get louder and more effective at, at just you know getting inside what are what were private enterprises and dictating the way they operate. Howard Marks talks about the proposals both in the
1: US and they're, they're repeated here in Australia for um, the social purpose of businesses to be expanded. And the idea at the moment, of course, is that uh, companies make profits for their shareholders uh, within the rules and regulations set by by the state. Uh, When that broader social purpose is broadened out to stakeholders or employees or something else, uh, he makes the point, how can you hold uh, the owners of the company responsible? How can you uh, hold uh, the managers of the company responsible uh, for such conflicting outcomes? And he would argue, and I'd share the view, um, that that in that spells the demise of capitalism.
3: I think there's very much a risk of that.
0: speaking of the end of empires I've been I love Victor David Hansen who is a uh, professor of classics at uh, Kell State until very recently uh, frequent contributor to the to the National Review where he writes on both ancient politics and also contemporary politics and he's got a podcast going um, so mine also Chris is a is a podcast <laughs> uh, it's called funnily enough the classicist uh, and it's lovely to get these kind of uh, different take on things, like where else can you read uh, a comparison of President Trump and Emperor Claudius? And Probably anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Other than, uh, well, this one with a bit of expression. National Enquirer, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but not conducted in ancient Greek. Uh, no, that was a joke. Sorry, it's in English. Um, his latest one, though, which is both on his podcast and also on the National Review website, is can Higher Education, be saved. After a lifetime in universities, he is extremely concerned about what he has seen in that time, Uh, the obsession with teaching diversity in the classroom, which, as he puts it, is time not spent learning a language or reading Shakespeare or the classics or anything that would actually entail learning. Um, He's also tied this back together, and this is what I liked about this piece, to the institutional nature of universities, at least in the US, um, where the massive, massive amounts of student debt, trillion uh, and a half dollars to pay for these degrees, uh, it's underwritten by the government so the universities can expand fully in the knowledge that they'll get that money by hook or by crook, um, keep jacking up fees year on year, getting more and more expensive with less and less quality of output. Um, he's very concerned that uh, this is, And then that money is paying for research, which is into even narrower and narrower slices of knowledge, researchers, uh, post, post-doctorals, uh, forced into studying very, very obscure it's, it's things. It's a
1: fantastic piece and what I loved, I mean, everything by VDH is, is usually terrific. Uh, one of the points that I really liked that he made was it's very easy to study isms. That's the easy stuff. Postmodernism, well, is, is complicated and complex, but it's easy uh, for so many lecturers. The classics are hard, a bit of Thucydides, a bit of Shakespeare, a bit of Herodotus. That's, that's hard stuff. And, and uh, academics take the easy easy way out when they go down the identity politics path because
2: life is a lot more complex than identity politics. Mm. And it's a lot harder to study blockchain uh, at the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub where, um, I, where I'm, I'm – I'm, I'm, What's the ism for blockchain? No, there isn't. Freedom. Freedomism. Yeah, freedomism. <laughs> freedomism. But, but <laughs> blockchain's
3: just another manifestation of white, your white privilege. It is. Uh, that's <laughs> it. That is probably true. <laughs> and where,
1: and, and um, I'm going to put a link to uh, that piece in my Friday email to IPA members. We're going to put a link to it in, hey, what did I miss? And how can anyone who's not an IPA member get that terrific article? Do you just Google
0: Uh, Victor Davis Hanson? On your uh, podcast device, if you look up the notes, we will put that uh, as a link to the notes. Um, Or indeed, if you want to receive John's email, you can join the IPA at ipa.org.au where you can also donate uh, if that's your preference. Uh, And certainly for this program, looking forward, Uh, If you want to make sure that you get further episodes, please do subscribe on your podcast platform. Um, This week, also, look out for a special edition of Looking Forward. We have an interview with uh, Professor Stephen Hicks of Rockford University in Illinois. He's the author of Explaining Postmodernism. Uh, You might already have heard a, uh, a short interview with him on the Young IPA podcast with James and Pete. That was a fantastic Introduction to Stephen Hicks, and then there's a much longer interview with myself, Chris Berg, and Bella Debrera. Uh, Stephen is touring Australia in March. You can learn more about that at TrueArrowEvents.com. Bella will actually be joining Stephen on stage as interlocutor and MC. Uh, very uh, deep thinker about postmodernism and all sorts of manifestations of the modern age. And I thank, uh, as always, my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Our guest. John when are you coming Thank back, you. John? Oh,
1: whatever you well, I mean, actually, I use that advisedly in both senses of the word. <laughs> <laughs> back here and back into Parliament because we need to have you no, back. That was terrific. I oh, don't thanks. want him in Parliament because then he won't be able to say anything. <laughs> well, we, well, we're talking about breaking the mould. We, we, we're, break we're going to have a minister we'll or a premier go. on the IPA podcast. Change, <laughs> how change, will that be?
0: Change starts here. And, of course... John Roskam, thank you for joining us. And uh, James Bolt, our executive producer, thanks again. Uh, we'll be back with you on Looking Forward next week.